Ephesians chapter 4. Please turn there with me. Picking up our reading at verse 17. Ephesians 4, 17. And we'll read to verse 24. This I say therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their hearts, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanliness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conduct the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Father in heaven, we come to your word this morning and ask to be instructed out of it. We ask, Lord, that you would take the word of God here written by your apostle. Lord, that you would illuminate our minds, renew our minds, cause us to understand what it is that you want us to understand and be changed by it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Verse 17, we pick up again. Now, Paul has just taken us on the grandest tour of heaven in all of Scripture. We've just been taken on the tour by Paul. He's shown us things from heaven's perspective. He's shown us a marvelous picture of what it's like up there. And it's extremely different than the things that we see on the earth, isn't it? For one, when we look up in heaven, we see ourselves in Christ. We see ourselves as righteous in Christ and lavished with grace. We see ourselves as God's church that he delights in and that he's building. On earth, when we look at ourselves, we don't always see ourselves as righteous or as beloved or as lavished with grace or as part of the church, but it's a completely different perspective. I'd say it's the grandest tour of heaven in all of scripture. And after Paul takes us through that tour, starting in chapter 4. He then instructs us, after taking us on the tour and showing us things from heaven's perspective, he instructs us to walk in a way that's suitable with the calling that we've been called, or with our salvation, or with the hope that we have, or with the vision we just saw. He instructs us. He says, hey, all of this that I've shown you is amazing, and it's true. Now walk in light of this that you saw. This is the walk of faith because we're walking by faith and not by sight. We're walking by things that aren't seen with our physical eyes. Have we learned to do that? Have we learned to walk through this life? When we talk about walking, we just talk about our living now. We're focusing on our life and our conduct and our behavior because Paul's instructing us in how we're to live our lives. Have we learned to live our life in light of that tour, that vision, that, that truth in heaven, suitably. 
And after telling us this, he then talks about unity. And I've said this before. But the point is this, is that the unity of the Spirit amongst Christians is supremely appropriate in light of the grace of God and the calling that we've been called with. So when we see what God has done for not just me, but every believer, then the unity of the Spirit is supremely suitable and appropriate. This is what Paul's saying. Walk in lowliness, gentleness, forbearance, patience with one another. And he's going to talk more about that in the latter part of chapter 4. But that's sup- supremely appropriate. Do we believe that? Do we believe that the most appropriate way we can live our lives now in light of heaven, in light of the gospel, is to be unified with one another and to live in peace with one another? Knowing that now we have peace with God, then what is suitable is to have peace also with those who have peace with God as well and with one another. Paul says this is supremely suitable, the unity of the Holy Spirit that we have together. And then in chapter 7, in verse 17, excuse me, Paul actually picks up the theme of walking again. So you can actually see unity as a little pause. He just talks about unity for many verses, from verse 4 to verse 16. But he picks up the theme of walking again in verse 17. Now he says, not the positive sense of walking, whereas in verse 1 he says, look, walk, this is the positive sense, believers, walk suitably with the calling that you've been called. And now here's the negative sense in verse 17. Don't walk any longer as the Gentiles walk. Walk suitably with the gospel. Don't walk as the Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. This is a contrast between the two. And I want just to highlight in verse 17 the vanity of their mind. The Gentiles walk, or the walk that the Gentiles do. What's a Gentile again? A Gentile is one who is an atheist, or a Gentile is one who is without God, without hope, without Christ. The Gentiles' walk is determined by their mind. They walk according to the vanity of their mind, their thinking, the way they see things, the way they think, the way they understand life. That's the way they walk. And that's not to be the way we walk because we have a new perspective. We have a new mind. We aren't to walk in the vanity of our minds anymore. We're to walk with a sound mind, with our perspective and our mind in heaven. So this is a principle of living. The way we think is the way we walk. This is a principle that even non-believers have understood. The way you think is the way you walk, how you think. And it's a principle throughout the Bible as well. Whenever the Bible goes into practical instructions for the believer, you can always find there something about the mind. For instance, Colossians chapter 3, which is the practical chapter in Colossians, the epistle, where there's lots of doctrine in Colossians. And then in chapter 3, Paul moves into the practical. And he prefaces all this by saying, if you are risen with Christ, set your mind on things above. Set your mind above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God and where your life is hid with Christ in God. Your true self, your true identity is actually in Christ above. And reality is actually based upon that, not just what you see. Set your mind there. And then he begins to explain 
that everything that we do in life as a Christian flows out of us seeing that and setting our minds on things above. You see that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Walk suitably with the calling, or walk suitably with the salvation, with the Torah that we've been talking about in the first three chapters of Ephesians. And then again in verse 17, don't walk as the Gentiles do in the vanity of their minds. Do you believe that your walk will be influenced by how you think and how you see? How many of you have noticed that when your mind is set on things above, when Maybe it's when you're reading scripture. Maybe it's when you're in church. It doesn't have to be any of those things because you can read scripture and, and you can be with the brothers and the sisters and not set your mind on things above. But maybe you are reading scripture one day. Maybe you are in church. Maybe you're singing a song, listening to the radio or whatever. And your mind seems to be lifted up to the things of heaven. And you seem to just get that perspective, that vision of, of the reality of what the Bible says. Your mind is taken off maybe the errands you have to do or the person that hurts you or whatever. And all of a sudden, things change, doesn't it? And sometimes you feel like you could just bless and love everybody, right? It just begins to flow out of you naturally. It's not coerced anymore. I find when my mind is not on things above, it's very difficult to walk in love towards others because I may be thinking about just where I got to be, and then if that gets, something gets in the way of that, I get upset because that's the only thing I'm thinking about at that moment. How we think affects the way we walk. Basic principle in all of life. And it, has, it affects everything we do, whether it's going to the bank or going to the theater or eating or anything. I wouldn't put my money in the bank if I didn't understand what a bank was. Because I understand it, I can go and give my money. But if someone has no concept of a bank, they're not just going to go give their money to strangers. Or if I'm not going to go to the theater unless I think that there's a show on, right? If there's no show, I'm not going to go. And uh, I've sometimes used this analogy before. I've mentioned this before, that when the Allies beat the Germans in World War II, there was a great party that took place in America. And all the, all the reason was is that they read the headlines, Victory in Europe. They Five minutes before, we're all sober. Five minutes before, they thought the war was going on and everyone was really sober-minded about things, and then they realized the war was over, not because they experienced anything or not because they felt that the war was over. They just got this new information. They believed it, their mind changed, and they started rejoicing. Our behavior is affected by our minds. If our minds are set on vanity like the Gentiles, the Gentiles who don't know God, they don't know Christ, they have no hope, how are they going to live? completely different than the one who has hope, who knows God, who knows Christ. The mind set on the Lord produces a different walk altogether. And Paul, in verse 2 and 3 of chapter 4, uh, tells us what a suitable walk looks like when your mind is set on things above. It's going to produce lowliness or meekness, gentleness, it's going to produce patience. These are just some things. This isn't exhaustive. He's just pointing out some things. It's going to produce unity and peace amongst people. These things are produced. If you continue the contrast, then the mind not set on things above and the vain mind is going to produce pride and it's going to produce roughness or violence, impatience, and division. The mind not set on things above 
produce these opposite things. Do you know this is actually a little snapshot of Romans chapter 1? Because Romans chapter 1, Paul says the same thing in just many more verses. He says that when the Gentiles reject the knowledge of God, when people reject the knowledge and the truth of God and they change that for a lie, their minds are darkened, and then what happens? What is the result of the mind being darkened? Their behavior changes, doesn't it? And then they produce all sorts of unrighteousness. Isn't that the, the case? In Romans chapter 1, he says the same thing. You lose the knowledge of God, and all of a sudden, you dishonor yourself in so many ways and work all these things that are unrighteous and that are the fruits of death and are worthy of death. The fruits are produced by this losing the truth and the knowledge of God. So Ephesians 17 to 19 is really just a, a snapshot of Romans chapter 1. He says essentially the same thing. Did you know that the mind not set on things above, when a person walks like that without the vision of grace in the heavenlies, inevitably relationships will be broken. Inevitably. Inevitably division's going to come. The whole context here is unity. Paul's saying, Jesus Christ is our peace. He brings peace between people. He brings unity, and therefore walk in that peace that we have. Without the knowledge of the grace of God, inevitably relationships are going to be broken. That's what happens. And when I say a broken relationship, that doesn't necessarily mean that people necessarily break off physical contact with one another, as in they, I don't want to talk to that guy anymore. That certainly happens. Like divorce. Why do we have so much divorce? It's because people don't have a vision of grace. But there are those who don't get divorced, and yet they also have disunity and they have division in their relationship because there's no grace. So it's not so much a matter of physically not being together, but there's no peace between people. This is inevitable when there's no grace, because you know what? It's inevitable that someone's going to sin against you when you're around them a lot. It's inevitable. So if you have a superficial relationship with people, fine, maybe you can get along with them, you know? If you have a superficial, you only see them every now and again, whatever. But there's no real deep contact there or relationship. You start getting close to somebody. You start getting in relationship with somebody, like family. Without grace, it's going to cause disunity and division. That's what's going to happen, period. Because people are sinful, right? We are sinful, flawed, failing people. Without forbearance, then there's going to be a break in relationship. And remember, that's not just physical separation. That's peace. That's peace between one another. I believe this is sort of the essence of what Paul is saying when he says, don't walk as the Gentiles walk and walk suitably because the whole context is unity. This isn't exhaustive, but this is a major part of what he's saying. He's saying, look, as believers, we are to walk now with patience and forbearance and unity and peace with one another. Don't walk as the Gentiles in the vanity of their mind with no vision of grace and only a vision of the temporal and themselves and what's best for them. And this is what happens is the opposite of what he's been talking about. Seeing yourself in the light of grace, when you think of yourself in the light of grace, 
That brings peace with God. That means you won't walk through life feeling condemned and guilty. You ever felt guilty and condemned? You ever felt like you didn't have peace with God? You need to see yourself in the light of grace. You need to believe the truth of heaven, that God loves you, gave his son for you. We're talking about you now. You believe it for yourself. You apply it to yourself. The Bible says God loved me, gave himself for me, shed his blood for me. And I see myself in the light of God's grace, and suddenly I can have peace. I have peace. I don't have to feel condemned and guilty. And this is the way to have success for yourself. So you don't feel guilty every time you sin and condemned. You can walk knowing God loves you. But to have success in relationships with one another, you have to see the other person in light of grace. You can't just see yourself in light of grace. You have to see the other person. And that's the whole key of relationships with others, is seeing the other person in light of grace, whether they're a non-believer or a believer. More so if they're a believer, they are forgiven, they are redeemed, they are your brother, you are one with them. They have the forgiveness of sins, more so. But even with a non-believer, you see them in the light of grace. They're lost, they're on the way to hell. God loves them, God gave himself for them, they don't believe it. And you see them in that way too. If you want peace with others, you need to see others in the light of grace also. You can't just be seeing yourself. That'll help you, but if you want to have relationship with your brothers and your sisters and the lost, you have to have a vision of them in the light of grace. Does that make sense? Now notice in verse 17, Paul says that you no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. Henceforth, he says in the King James, you know, which means they were walking that way. As a matter of fact, this is up to the point of their conversion. He's talking to Christians now. He's talking to Christian people, and he's saying, no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. Christians. Well, he wouldn't say that if salvation came by not walking as the Gentiles. You see? He's talking to Christians. The very point of their salvation was when they believed the gospel, not when they changed their walk. The change of the walk doesn't produce salvation. Because now that they're saved, he says, hey, let's walk different. Right? Let's walk different now that we're saved. And as a matter of fact, it's not our walk that brings us salvation, but it's understanding and believing and walking or uh, meditating on seeing, walking by faith in salvation that changes our behavior. This is also seen in Romans chapter 6. But do you see that? That no longer walk that way. Because salvation isn't by changing your walk, but by believing the good news that God loves you and gave his son for you on the cross for all your sins. All your sins. Past, present, and future. In verse 17 and 18, there's a progression or an order here. It actually teaches us how do they get to be like this. So, verse 19 describes the walk, but 17 and 18 gives us the progress or the order of the cause of this walk. How did they get like this? How did the Gentiles get to get their behavior in such a proud and impatient and unloving and as it says lasciviousness and greediness how did they get to that place and there's a process and here is the process there's six points first it's and he looks at it backwards so he starts with their behavior and works backwards first is their behavior their walk their behavior is caused because of the vanity of their mind 
The vanity of their mind is caused because their understanding is darkened, it says in verse 18. Their understanding is darkened because they're alienated from the life of God. The life of God is the life that God has and that is given to us. The life that comes from God, that is his spiritual life. Like in the Bible it says, in him is life. Or Jesus said, as the Father has life within himself, he's also given the Son to have life within himself, that he'd give life to men. But John says this in John 1, he says, in him is life, and that life is the light of men. The light of the understanding. So why don't they have understanding? Because they don't have the life of God. They're alienated from it. And why don't they have the life of God? This is an amazing thing. This is an, a, an amazing thing. Why do people not have that life from God, the life of God? Because they sin? No, because they're ignorant, it says. They're ignorant. And not only are they ignorant, it says it's the ignorance that's in them. It's actually a character. It's not just exterior. It's not just this ignorance that's out there that they don't understand, but it's in them. They have an ignorance within them, a character of ignorance. It's implied a willful ignorance because of the next one. Why are they ignorant? Because of the hardness of their hearts. That's the very first cause. The King James says blindness, but it actually should be translated hardness. The word is the old Greek word for callous. A callous. Those things, your heart gets callous. gets hard. And that's the cause. So what starts in the heart goes through the mind and then affects the walk. That is the cause of their walk. That is the order that Paul highlights here. And much could be said about that. But it starts with them hardening their heart against God, not wanting to believe, not wanting to know him. Wanting, it's a moral thing. It's not just an intellectual thing at, at first. It's a moral thing. And that moral thing, they want to be ignorant of the information that God wants to give them, of the revelation. They, they reject the truth. They reject the revelation of God, which in turn cuts them off from the life of God, cuts them off from understanding, gives them a vain mind, and produces in them this walk. But if you take the opposite of all these things, notice, and I'll start from the heart this time. If you have a soft heart that's been softened by the Holy Spirit of God, if you have a soft heart that is willing to accept the things of God, what will be produced? First of all, knowledge. The opposite of ignorance is knowledge. A soft heart produces the knowledge of God. You come to know him. The information, the revelation, the truth about him, the truth. And knowing that truth brings you into the life of God. And that life brings light and understanding. So not only do you have the information, but you also have the understanding of that information, which produces a sound mind, a mind that's right, that thinks clearly, that's not vain. And a sound mind produces a sound walk. Martin Lloyd-Jones 
emphasized in his ministry, and it's something I really I agree with. He said, the Bible portrays the, the whole problem with man is ignorance. They don't know the truth. And the ministry of, of the church to the lost in evangelism is, is taking truth, preaching the gospel. Whom you igno- ignorantly worship, I declare unto you. This is Paul. He went out, preached Jesus, preached the gospel, preached about God, preached about the resurrection, preached knowledge, information, but life-changing information. Information that, if believed, changes a person's life. And if you notice here, it's the same thing. It's men's ignorance that keep them from salvation. And it's men's ignorance that keep them from being transformed in their life as well. And Satan, it always says, he blinds the heart. He blinds their eyes, excuse me. He blinds their eyes and he keeps them in darkness. Because he knows that if they know, the truth will set them free. Now in verse 19, we might ask the question, well, my goodness, being past feeling, giving themselves over into lasciviousness, like that's just unbridled lust to work all uncleanliness with greediness. Well, I mean, not all people are like that, right? Not all non-believers. That, I mean, there's a lot of non-believers in this world that don't, live seems the way it's described here, right? But I think what Paul is, is portraying is the ideal Gentile, saying the ripened ideal Gentile. This isn't necessarily true for every Gentile, but this is what is inevitably going to happen when this course is pursued. It's the ideal Gentile. And I, I believe in, in the days of these Ephesians, and I believe Paul is speaking specifically about the culture of the Greeks here, not necessarily the Jews, uh, there was this uh, unbridled lust in those na- in those cultures that had gripped that nation and those people. And so he's saying, look, this is, how did they get like this? Started with a hard heart, ignorance, alienated from the life of God, vain mind. This is not how you're to walk. It's the ideal Gentile, the ideal scenario. Is this also true, though, of the Jew? Well, I don't believe this is specifically speaking of the Jew. This is true of the Jew. Again, in Ephesians chapter 2, the Jew is called a Gentile. But there's a different kind of vanity when we're talking about the Jew because you have to see the difference between the problem and the solution. The problem is that men hate God, their hearts are hard, and they produce all this sin and filth. Romans 1. Happens to every person, whether you're Jew or Gentile. But the Jew, having been given knowledge from God, not salvational knowledge about Jesus because they've rejected that. But they do have a knowledge of God. They have said that, well, we're going to have a, a solution to this problem. The problem, of course, is sin, rebellion. And we're going to have a solution. The solution is keep the law and be righteous and keep the commandments and do good and all those things. That's the Jewish vanity. It's a different vanity. And it produces also a different outcome in the walk. You might look at a Jew and he's not like a Greek living in lewdness. But in Romans 2, Paul points out, you're just full of sin yourself. Brood of vipers, John the Baptist and Jesus accused the Pharisees. They weren't living in adultery, those people. But they were still full of sin. Hypocrisy, pride, judgmentalism. Another walk that's produced, but from a different vanity. One vanity is not knowing God at all. The other vanity is having a knowledge of God, 
but being vain in your understanding of God and thinking that you can be saved by your works. This is the Jewish vanity that also produces a walk that the Christian is instructed not to walk that way. And that Jewish or Judaic vanity has different branches now because of the influence of the Bible in the world. So now we have Mormonism and we have Islam and we have Catholicism and all these Judaic branches. And though here we're talking about those who have no knowledge of God, there's a vanity even in those religious people who have a knowledge of the Bible and not of Jesus and of Christ. Because in verse 20 and 21, now we talk about the truth that's in Jesus. You can be Mormon and Catholic and Muslim and, and a Jew. You might have some, some knowledge of God, but do you have the truth that is in Jesus? Specifically, Jesus is mentioned, not just Christ. Christ is, but you have not so learned Christ, that's Messiah. So be that you have heard him and have been taught by him, Christ, as the truth is in Jesus now, specifically. The man, Christ Jesus. Which Christ? Who? The word Christ isn't an exclusively Christian term, though we often use it as such. But there's many religions that use the word Christ, even Bible-believing religions, so-called. But Jesus is specific. And what Paul is saying is this, is that the truth that you learned in him is not like the vain mind that the Gentiles have. The truth that you have that you have learned in Jesus doesn't lead you into, doesn't promote, doesn't teach you to walk in that old way. But it teaches you to walk, as Titus says, soberly, godly, righteously in this present world. And you know what it teaches us? Grace. The grace of God, as Paul says in Romans 6, again, because the objection is, yeah, but if you believe in grace, then you're just going to live like a heathen, the Jew objects. But Paul says, no, no, grace actually teaches us not to walk as the Gentiles walk in the vanity of their minds. It teaches us to walk in lowliness, gentleness, patience, forbearing, love, unity, because of who God is and what he's done for us. It teaches us this, the truth that's in Jesus. This these two verses here have been called the school of Christ. Because if you notice, in verse 20, we learn Christ, or we learn about him. We learn him in an intimate way. He's the object of what we learn. In verse 21, he's the teacher. We've heard him. So he's the object of what we learn. He's the teacher of what we learn. And it says, as you've been taught in him, according to the Greek text, it's not by him, but in him. He's also the school that you learn it in. That's kind of an interesting uh, thought. But the idea is that in your experience of being united to him, when, like in other verses it says, you shall, if you do my doctrine, you shall know it's of God, or you have an anointing that's in you that teaches you all things. This is that actual experiential union with him. That's the atmosphere that you learned and heard and learned of him. So it's been called the school of Christ because of this. It's about him, he's the teacher, and it's in him. It's all about Jesus, this truth. And this is a very interesting passage because as he goes on to talk about the old man and the new here, we're going to look at this in verse 22 and to 24. He talks about the old man and the new man. And what's important is to see that 
He's talking past tense. So in verse 20, he's saying, you have not learned Christ. You have not learned Christ in this way that would lead you into this life. You have had a mind change that teaches you to have a different walk. So your mind is different than the Gentiles. Your outcome and your walk will be different than the Gentiles too. But it's past tense. You have learned. You haven't learned Christ this way, past tense. If so be that you have heard him, past tense. You have been taught of him, past tense, as the truth is in Jesus. And then verse 22 to 24 explains what that truth is that you had learned. Paul isn't saying in 22 to 24, he's not pointing the finger in the present now and giving you a command. He's not saying, hey, Christian, Ephesian, Loganite, is that what it is? You haven't, here's what you need to do. You now, present day, here's the command, you need to put off the old man and his works. You need to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you need to put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and holiness. Paul isn't at this place giving commandments. Now, verse 25 is, a, is an exhortation, is a command, is an imperative in the present. But 22 to 24, he's actually just saying what they learned in the past. When they were saved, this is the essence of the truth that they learned in Jesus when they became Christians. And here was what they learned. They were told to put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, to be renewed in the spirit of their mind, and to put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Do you know what this is? This is the gospel. Essentially, in, a, in, a, in essence, it's the gospel. Paul might have not said it that way. Maybe he did. But this is essentially what this truth is, is this. Hey, you, as you are, are corrupt. And with that corruption comes all these wicked works. And all those works are going to be judged. Your identity is corrupt. Your works are corrupt. You've been deceived. You think that you're okay. You think these works aren't going to bother you. You think that it's for your good that you do these things. You're all deceived, and you need to totally put off that old man. That old man needs to be discarded. Essentially preaching, um, like you have a problem, and you need to put off yourself. You're the problem. And you need to put on the new man, which is righteous and holy, or else God cannot accept you, and you'll be lost forever. Now, the ultimate question is, what does that mean, and how do you do that? <laughs> because that's not enough just to say that, because then, because most people understand that. They, oh, yeah, man has a problem, and he needs to change. This is essentially what he's saying. Man has a problem, and he needs to change. But how? How do you put off the old man? How do you put on a new man that's righteous and holy? Because that's told by lots of different religions that aren't Christian that maybe call themselves Christian. I've had lots of people tell me that they tell me this, but they don't tell me the gospel. They say, no, this is the gospel, that you stop your sins, put off that old way, put on righteousness and holiness, and you'll be saved, become a new man. But the gospel, the good news about the life and death of Jesus now gives us instruction into this. How do you put off the old man? How do you put on the new man? 
Paul says this in Romans 6, 6. He says, we know that the old man has been crucified with Christ. The old man is your old self and your old identity in Adam. The Adamic man, the man that's not in Christ, it's been crucified with Christ. Paul says that all those who believe in what Jesus did is united to Jesus in his death so that the death of Christ is essentially the death of the believer. And if you believe in him, you know, or I'll let me tell you, your old man's dead and gone. Crucified, dead, and buried, and he's gone. How do you put off the old man? You believe in what Jesus did for you and taking upon himself your sins, your identity, and dying there. Believing on him affects that change, that the old man is gone. There's nowhere in the New Testament, anywhere, that the Bible tells a Christian to take the old man off. Always the Bible says, if you're a Christian, the old man is gone. It is gone. I want to show you something even more radical than that. Not only is your identity gone, something else is gone too. And this relates directly to Ephesians 4.22. But turn with me to Colossians chapter 3 again, which is really the parallel passage to this. This is an amazing thing. You see it even more clearly. Paul says the exact same thing in Colossians and Ephesians. But you see it so much more clearly in Colossians and just the way he puts it. But notice what he says now in Colossians 3, verse 9 and 10. He says this, Lie not one to another, practical instruction, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in the knowledge after the image of him that created him. Paul says, don't lie to each other anymore, seeing that you have put off the old man and his deeds. That's an amazing thing. Not only did Jesus die for you and, and so that you are reckoned as dead, but even all your deeds and all your sins are gone. Do you believe that as a Christian, your old identity and deeds and sins are gone? Your deeds are gone, he says. They are gone, past tense. And he gives this practical instruction to lie not to one another. He's not saying they're gone because you don't lie anymore. He's saying don't lie anymore because they are gone. That is an amazing thing. And this is what Paul is saying in Ephesians 4.2. He says the old man with all its conduct is to be put off. And the old man with all its conduct is put off at the cross when Jesus Christ died for the old man with all, all his conduct. Isn't that amazing? The old man and his deeds are gone. Sometimes we only say one is gone, not the other. We might, the, you know, the, my identity is in Christ, but I'm still, I'm, I'm still, I got all these deeds that I'm guilty of. But everything about the old man is gone. Everything. And actually, Paul says, that's the, that's the trick. That's the key to not lying to one another, is seeing that. Romans 6, the trick to living a life of godliness is reckoning that the old man and his deeds are gone. That you are a new man in Christ. And who's the new man, of course? It's not me. It's not Eli 
right? It's not. It's Jesus, the only righteous man who has allowed me to be united to him in his identity. I'm a new man because I'm in him. You're a new person because you're in him. Created in Christ. Remember Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10? We are his workmanship created in Christ. Now he says created in righteousness and true holiness. That is Jesus. That is not you or your deeds. That's Jesus. It has nothing to do with your behavior. It's everything to do with the gospel truth of what he did. Now in believing that and seeing that, our behavior then is affected. This was what they heard. This is what they believed. This is what they were taught. This is the truth they learned and believed, was that they were to put off the old man and to put on the new man by renewing their minds or repenting and believing the good news of the gospel, what Jesus did for them. Renewing the mind. It's all about the mind. There was a mind change. And because there was a mind change, there was an identity change, because there is that, we're new creatures in Christ. Another verse, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation in righteousness and holiness. If you're a Christian, if you're in Christ by faith, you're righteous and holy. Ephesians 1, remember, God chose us before the foundation of the world to be before him in holiness, blameless in holiness. I believe it was um, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, when he prophesied after being able to speak again. He said, basically, praise God that he's raised up unto us a savior so that we being saved from our enemies would be before him, or the Greek is actually in the sight of God and in his presence, in righteousness and holiness, the exact same expression here. If you're in Christ, don't look at your deeds because they're gone. Don't look at your old identity because it's gone. You are righteousness and holiness in Christ. Isn't that good news? Your righteousness before him is not your own. And it amazes me that sometimes we can read that verse that we have or Christians read this in verse 24 and think righteousness and they think that means that if I'm a Christian, I have to not sin anymore. If I'm a Christian, I should be righteous and holy. You are righteous and holy. And that's what he's saying. This whole, um, the whole point of Paul's doctrine of sanctification, you could say, the, the doctrine of living a Christian life, it's all about reckoning yourself to be what God says you are. And as you believe that for yourself and then for all other believers, your walk will change. If you walk in any other way, if you think in any other way, you're thinking with a vain mind. If you think that you believe in Christ, but, oh, I'm still so wicked and guilty and so is everybody else, you're walking like the Gentiles or you're walking like the Jews in the vanity of their mind. Let our minds be renewed. Now at salvation they were. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. We need to learn to set our mind on things above every day. We see who we are and whoever, who everyone else is and let our walk be affected by that. 
So all these commands, brothers and sisters, all these exhortations in Ephesians and Colossians, all these exhortations towards Christians, it's not do these things to be righteous and holy, but look, because of your new identity, because of what God's done for you, because of his grace that is teaching you, therefore, be patient. Lie not to one another. And it all flows out of that. This whole thing about position and practice is no cliché. You've often heard that before. Well, your position in Christ is this, and you, it doesn't change, but your practice, you need to, God wants us to practice and live suitably with our position. Some people say, no, that's blasphemy. If, if your practice is bad, your position is bad. That's not what the Bible says, and it's no cliche. That whole teaching about position and practice is the essence of what Paul's getting at, and the essence of his doctrine of sanctification. That's the essence of the whole thing. Your position is righteous and holiness, therefore walk suitably. And that's no cliche. You're not an old man anymore, Kim. You're not an old man, Alan. You aren't the old man. You are, in Christ, a new creation. You are righteous and holy in God's sight. And all your deeds are gone. That's who you are. And that's who Deanna is, too. That's who I am, too. And Terry, etc. So, let's not walk in the vanity of the mind anymore. As Paul says, don't do it anymore. Set your mind on things above. Where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God where you are sitting in him, your life is hid there with Christ in God. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for all these things. We do thank you, Lord, for seeing us in our unrighteousness as an old, as the old man and corrupt. And yet, Lord, you sent your son to die for us and put off our identity, put off all of our deeds. I just thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for the great hope that we have. Thank you for the riches of your grace. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord, in Jesus, and that you blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ because he is righteous and holy. Lord, I just pray that we would set our minds above and see ourselves and one another in the light of this truth. And I pray that we would do that every day, Lord, that our walk would be different than the Gentiles around us, God, and the religious people around us, too. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.